I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about Lou Reed and John Cale, whose uneasy partnership formed the crux of the Velvet Underground. And i got to say, the phrase drug-fueled is overused, but it's pretty <laughs> unavoidable in this case. So yes. get ready for a lot of leather, whips, speed, unlistenable records, and uh, some decapitated chickens. Why not? Can I also add the word genius to this equation? You know, I oh, think absolutely. that word is overused in most contexts, but I think it more than applies to both of these guys, who rank among the greatest and most influential artists ever to work in the realms of punk, indie, alternative, and underground music. I mean, you can't write the history of outsider rock music in the 20th century without devoting at least a couple of chapters to Lou Reed and John Cale. Oh, totally. I mean, Lou and John pushed the envelope in so many different ways, but they did so in very different ways in their time in the Velvet Underground. Like, Lou wanted to do so by incorporating the sort of rough and raw language of the streets and writing these really highly literate lyrics to create what he thought was sort of rock and roll for adults. And uh, John Cale wanted to incorporate his ideas from his time in the avant-garde scene in the Lower East Side of New York. He worked with people like Lamont Young and John Cage. And for me, the best Velvet Underground songs are songs like Heroin, Venus and Furs, and All Tomorrow's Parties, which utilize really both of their approaches. And when Lou forced John out of the band, it really became, for me, a totally different band. And there are some who say that when uh, he fired John Cale, it was his biggest creative mistake in a career really characterized by a lot of self-sabotage. Yeah, I was going to say, like, ranking all of the self-sabotage in Lou Reed's career. I mean, that would be an incredible list. you know. But, like, yeah, you could say that forcing John Cale out of the Velvet Underground was a mistake. But on the other hand, we are, again, talking about two geniuses here. And it's hard to imagine any band that could have contained talents as forceful and idiosyncratic as Lou Reed and John Cale 
for like a sustained period of time. What's interesting to me is that when you listen to the records that they made apart from each other, I feel like you could hear the presence of the other guy. I mean, they really did continue to influence and even haunt each other's records <laughs> for years after they split. So, you know, there's lots to dive into with this. I'm excited to get into it. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. Lou Reed was really someone who from an early age felt suffocated by social norms and the conformity of the post-war era. He was born in Brooklyn in 1942, and his dad was an accountant. His mom was a stenographer, and they moved out to Long Island in the suburbs, not far from, like, the Levittown tract houses, like the height of, of 50s conformity. Uh, and, you know, even as a little boy, he seemed miserable. He attended Hebrew school, and he would later describe it as, like, being in a concentration camp. So not exactly <laughs> yeah. a, a happy-go-lucky little boy here. And really, even at this early age, he felt removed from his peers. And there was a friend in school who would later say that while most kids were sneaking beers, Lou was smoking joints and reading French erotic fiction like the story of O. And uh, it was sort of the, the first sign that Lou might not be completely heterosexual. His parents uh, took him to a psychiatrist and they famously administered a really brutal uh, electroshock therapy that really wreaked havoc on his mind and his outlook on the world. I mean, he felt this was a huge betrayal from the people who were meant to protect him. And uh, really, I think that colored his view of the world as a sort of even darker and scarier place than he already imagined it. And uh, and his relationship with his family really never recovered. There was a story when he was out walking with his friends as an adult in New York, and his friend said the only time he ever saw Lou Reed afraid was when he accidentally bumped into his family on the street. So that that says a lot about him, I think. Yeah, and I think we're going to mm. see that the relationship that he had, I think especially with his father, you know, how troubled that was. It's going to, I think, color some of the other relationships that he has with other men in his life, like the crucial uh, relationships. And I think the first example we're going to see of that is when Lou Reed goes to college at Syracuse University. And he's at school. He's interested in becoming a writer. And initially, he had thoughts that he might become a journalist, which to me – is hilarious considering that Lou Reed, I think more than any other rock star, like is famous for hating journalists and like torturing journalists. He was also playing folk guitar at this time and really worshiping at the altar of Bob Dylan, like a lot of other, I think, aspiring songwriters in the early 60s. All the while he was developing this very cynical, sarcastic, and often like just flat out mean persona that I think ultimately was a defense mechanism for his own insecurity and fragility. I mean, that is an old cliche about bullies, that they are deep down, you know, very insecure and fragile people. But I think that was certainly true of, of Lou Reed. But a crucial meeting that he makes at Syracuse is with the poet Delmore Schwartz, who becomes, I think, the first of his, like, surrogate father figures. And, you know, if you're a Lou Reed fan, you know Delmore Schwartz. If you've, like, read Lou Reed biographies, Delmore Schwartz appears Lots of times. There's also that great song, My House, from The Blue Mask, uh, 1982, like one of the great Lou Reed records. And that song's a tribute to Delmore Schwartz. And I think Delmore, you know, he was the first, again, of these like surrogate father figures. I think Andy Warhol was going to end up being that. And in a weird way, I feel like that also applies to John Cale. Maybe not a father figure per se, but a mentor type figure who is going to help Lou, I think, again, compensate for that insecurity that he has about his own talent. But going back to the timeline here, at Syracuse University, Lou is starting to experiment with songwriting. And supposedly he starts getting into songwriting because it's hard for him to concentrate 
on longer form prose writing, I guess because of his uh, electroshock therapy, like that really screwed him up mentally, made it hard for him to kind of focus on more sort of novelistic type writing. But he already had this idea at Syracuse that he wanted to take that street level rock and roll that he loved as a kid. Like he was a huge doo-wop fan back then. They were like Dion and the Belmonts. Exactly. Infusing that with the gritty street level literature that he loved. Like he was a huge fan of like Hubert Selby's Last Exit to Brooklyn. So like how do you take Last Exit to Brooklyn with like this great gritty New York doo-wop rock music? Well, you end up with songs like Heroin. You know, and he was already <laughs> tinkering with Heroin, the song and also the drug, of course, when he was at Syracuse, although it would be many years before the outside world would hear that song. And it's really interesting because his first job out of college is working at a, a sort of budget label called Pickwick. And what they would do is they would basically write knockoff versions of hits. And it's sort of here that he really hones his his gift for melody because he, he's listening to hit songs and trying to basically rip them off and making 25 bucks a week to do so. And he writes a song that's kind of a parody of the dance crazes that were sweeping the nation in the early 60s, like the twist and the, and the Watusi and stuff like that. It's called The Ostrich. And it's a total joke song. I mean, it, it has lyrics like, put your head on the floor and have somebody step on it. Like, it's, very, <laughs> it's Lou Reed writing a, a dance craze parody song. And, um, and he writes it in this really unique way. He takes his guitar strings and detunes them all so they're all playing the same note. So it sounds almost like a sitar. It's this drone sound. It's this really weird sound. And he releases the song, The Ostrich, is given a fake band name called The Primitives. It's just a bunch of studio musicians. And the song actually does reasonably well. And the label wants to promote it by putting a band together and go out and play it on the road. And Lou doesn't really know anybody to play with. And he's looking around to try to find somebody to, uh, to put this, this, make this fake band a reality. And that's how he meets John Cale. Yeah, and I love the beginnings of their relationship because it almost sounds like the monkeys or something, you know, like yeah. this, this prefabricated band. And the appeal of John Cale to Lou Reed at that time was, one, that he had long hair, and two, that uh, John Cale was from Wales, so he had a Welsh accent, which was close enough to a British accent to, you know, tie them in with the British invasion, which was, of course, very big at the time. John Cale, of course, had very little connection otherwise to rock music. He was already a rising star in the classical and avant-garde scenes. The reason that he ended up in America is that he was awarded this very prestigious uh, scholarship. It's like the Leonard Bernstein Scholarship to study uh, musical composition. And he was actually interviewed for that position by Aaron Copland, like this very legendary composer. So John Cale was already like rubbing shoulders like with modern musical giants at this time. When he ended up in New York, he uh, hooked up with this guy, Lamont Young, who at the time was considered to be at the vanguard of avant-garde classical music composition. He had taken over that mantle from John Cage uh, in the early 60s. And John Cage, by the way, also had a connection to John Cale. Actually, John Cale had some notoriety and I guess like the hippest parts of the avant-garde scene in New York because he had been photographed performing with John Cage on stage. So you know, people saw that photo. It was published in the newspaper. So he had some, like, I guess, like, like a modicum of celebrity, like, among those circles. It's interesting to me because, like, when he first heard Lou Reed's songs, John Cale didn't like them because musically they just sounded like folk music to him. And, of course, John Cale is coming from this classical and avant-garde background, and he just thought folk music was boring and, and conservative. 
It wasn't until he started paying attention to Lou Reed's lyrics that the songs really started to connect with him. And he could appreciate like how sophisticated the words were, how literary they were, how gritty they were, and how Lou Reed was already writing about the sorts of things that people didn't talk about in pop music. And it really entranced John Cale. And he basically just like abandoned Lamont Young and started working with Lou Reed, which in retrospect seems like a natural decision to make, but in the you know mid-60s, was a pretty like strong vote of confidence uh, for Lou Reed, uh, you know, that he would take up with this guy that really like didn't have a pot to piss in at that point. And their relationship early on, it really was like a true friendship. You know, Kale has talked about how Lou Reed was the was his first real friend in America, and he felt that Lou Reed, in a way, taught him how to survive in New York. You know, like we think of Lou Reed as being like this quintessential New York character. He's, of course, written about New York in rock music as well as anybody. But even back then, he was a native of the area. He knew the lay of the land, almost like a Ratso Rizzo type figure. I was figure. just going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the Midnight like, Cowboy. The Midnight Cowboy type thing. So he looked to Lou Reed for that. Also, Lou Reed introduced John Cale to heroin. They started shooting up together at this time, which is, I guess, a dubious thing for your friend to introduce you to. You Maybe <laughs> that's a down... Thing, but like it did, you know, bond them together. Looking at it from Lou Reed's perspective, you know, I said this earlier, you know, talking about John Cale being a mentor, maybe not so much like a, a father figure, but he did seem almost like a record producer for Lou Reed in a way. Like Cale himself said that he felt like he took on a Svengali like role with Lou Reed because Lou had all this talent. He had good songs already, but he was suffering from depression. And Cale said, I think he used the phrase low energy to describe uh, Lou Reed at this time, which is a very Trumpian phrase now. <laughs> but, you know, he said he was low energy. Like, so Kale kind of encouraged him and said, like, look, you have talent and we could do something together. And I'm sure Kale thought in his own mind that, like, I can take the words that this guy's written and sort of realize them musically and really take it to a whole different place. And, and, that, like, right there, I think you can see, like, the Velvet Underground starting to take shape. Yeah, absolutely. Lou was really in a fragile place at this time, not only just psychologically because he'd been, he'd just gone through this this really traumatic therapy and been prescribed all of these uh, tranquilizers. And I think upon his, one of his first meetings with John, he said, you know, I, they think I'm crazy. I think I'm crazy. And John said to him, you're not crazy. Come on, come make music with me. And I think, I mean, it's difficult to imagine now how badly Lou probably needed to hear that. And all these songs that he was playing for John, his record label didn't want to know anything about. You know, Pickwick Records, who's trying to make off knockoff hit songs, don't want to hear heroin. So to get such a vote of confidence from this guy who has, you know, rubbed shoulders with Aaron Copeland would have been huge for Lou at this time. So so they shack up at this Lower East Side, basically a tenement house, which was, you know, the, the landlord would come and collect rent with a shotgun because it was a really rough neighborhood. And they spend about a year uh, kind of coalescing their sound. And like you said, John sort of serves as, as sort of a musical director. They both have this incredible gift for improvisation. And they just would have these jams at their at their flat. And John would kind of move loose folky songs over into more of the stuff that he was doing with Lamont Young, which was also very drone-based. I think that was a musical connection early on was when John heard the Ostrich song and it was played with this detuned guitar that was like a drone. He thought, wait a minute, this is very similar to the kind of work I do. So they had that point of connection early on too. Uh, but 
John shaped it a little more. And uh, and that, that really, as you said, it was sort of the genesis of, of the Velvet Underground was just was those two. I love the story about Lou Reed and John Cale like busking in Harlem at this time. <laughs> and like I think Lou had an acoustic guitar and John would have a viola. And they'd just be playing on a street corner. I don't know if they were playing Velvet Underground songs. There's no way this happened, but I would love to imagine that there was like a bootlegger recording some of oh those busking God. performances. That'd be incredible. But as far as the Velvet Underground goes, it, their lineup solidifies once they add Sterling Morrison on guitar and Mo Tucker on drums. And, you know, as unusual to rock music as I think Lou Reed's songs were and John Cale's, you know, classical avant garde background, you know, Morrison and Tucker. I think brought their own flavor to the band, especially Mo Tucker. I mean, who I think is a great drummer, but certainly not a conventional rock drummer by any stretch of the imagination. All of these elements were going to, you know, go a long way to ensuring that the Velvet Underground were not going to sound like any other rock band that came before them. Which again is great now when we think about the Velvet Underground. You know, this iconic, you know, band of American rock music. But in their own time, it was very difficult to find a place that was appropriate for them to play. Like, have you heard that story about like how they would play like high school auditoriums <laughs> back then? Like who made that booking? <laughs> I have no idea. Like, yeah, you booked the Velvet underground, like for like the, the sock hop or something. I, I don't even know like what the occasion would be to have the Velvet underground come through. Ladies choice for heroin. Yeah. I mean, just <laughs> exactly. like, God. and even like when they were playing like Greenwich village venues, you know, the Velvet underground didn't really fit in because they weren't a folk band. You know, the folk scene, of course, was still pretty big at that time. And they weren't, you know, like a Beatlesque British invasion type group. You know, they were definitely something very different. And again, much more provocative and noisy than bands were at that time. There's a great story about them playing, I think, somewhere in New York where you know, they're playing Sister Ray, which is one of the great Velvet <laughs> Underground songs. This epic, you know, like 20 minute or so noise uh, opus. Yeah, noise opus. And, uh, the, the 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 owner of the bar where they were playing was like, you know, don't play that song again. You know, I don't want to hear that song. It's just the cacophonous mess. So then they proceed <laughs> in their next set to play a 45-minute version of Sister Ray where the entire set is just <laughs> them blaring away on Sister Ray, which is so awesome for us now. Like, that is why we love the Velvet Underground. But, you know, you could see how in the moment wasn't the best thing for their career. Right. And so I think they ended up losing that gig. But... Fortuitously, somebody from Andy Warhol's factory had actually seen them play at this at this venue and word got back to, to Andy that this was a pretty cool band. And Andy, by this point in 65, early 66, he was already a prolific painter, sculptor, filmmaker, and he was trying to expand his sort of factory empire into rock and roll. And uh, and, and he dropped in and he saw the band perform and, and he really liked them and he offered to be their, their manager. And this kind of had very loose connotations. I think he was almost more of like an executive producer. He sort of financed their records and gave them spots at his multimedia art shows, the exploding plastic inevitable. And he, he used his clout to get them uh, record deals. I mean, that Lou Reed would say in later years that he thought that the band got their first record deal because Andy agreed to do the, the sleeve for their album, which is, you know, probably true at that time. Uh, as far as shaping their sound, he really didn't do much. He 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 urged Lou to keep the dirty words in his lyrics. That was his big his big uh, his big insight. And he also uh, he would just sort of hector Lou to write more. I mean, in a lot of ways, he wanted Lou to write in the same way that Andy himself would just crank out prints and silk screens at his factory. You know, he treated it like work, and he's, he was incredibly prolific. Lou less so. So to be helpful, Andy would would just 
throw song titles at him or just things that he thought would make good song titles and just kind of urge him to keep writing. And the other main influence that Andy had on the Velvet Underground was he thought they weren't glamorous enough. He thought they were kind of boring to look at. So he suggested, well, suggested is kind of too weak a word. He, he, he forced them to team up with this very striking German model known as Nico. Yes, and this ends up being a big point of contention, especially for Lou Reed, because he wants this to be his band. You know, as far as he's concerned, he's the front man. And now Andy Warhol wants to put in essentially a new lead singer into the band, this beautiful blonde German woman who is only going to distract the audience from Lou Reed. And he already has to worry about John Cale being in the band. You know, it, it was already, I think, pretty apparent that while Lou Reed was writing the songs, I think John Cale was just as important in the Velvet Underground early on as Lou Reed was, as, again, as a musical director and as like a sonic innovator in the Velvet Underground. It's hilarious to me that uh, Lou Reed ended up writing the song Sunday Morning, which is like maybe the prettiest pop song on the first uh, Velvet Underground record. And it was supposed to be for Nico to sing, but then I guess he realized that that was such a great song that like he wanted to sing it himself. <laughs> so, you know... Very resistant to bringing in Nico. I have to say, though, that I think Andy Warhol's instincts were correct. I love the fact that Nico's on that first record. And when you have songs like Femme Fatale and I'll Be Your Mirror, those are just like perfectly like crafted for her persona. And I think it brings something unique to that record that sets it apart from the other Velvet Underground records. What's also interesting, I guess, like in a behind-the-scenes kind of way with the Velvet Underground, is that Lou Reed and John Cale both had flings with Nico. and um, Like around I, the same time, right? Around the same time. And I think, like, I mean, didn't, like, Lou Reed, like, write Femme Fatale, like, about that? Like, like a Fleetwood Mac rumors? And I'll Be Your Mirror. Yeah. yeah. You know, like early rumors uh, type record. Um, and I have to imagine that there was some tension, like, between... Lou and John over that, that they were involved with the same woman, or maybe it was just the 60s and people were cooler about that sort of thing. But I would think that that would, you know, sort of exacerbate the sense of competition that was already brewing between these guys. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's almost like with David Crosby and Graham Nash with Joni Mitchell. It's been spoken about so much over the years, but I've never heard any like stories of resentment about that. But you're right. It has to have played some kind of role in, in just the growing tensions between them. It must have. But the so-called Banana Album, it goes on to become, you know, one of the most influential albums of all time. Stripping away the legend, though, I think you can kind of see the schism between Nico and the rest of the band. I mean, Lou insisted that the album be called The Velvet Underground and Nico, just to underscore the fact that she really wasn't part of the group. This was like, you know, a collaborative thing. She wasn't in The Velvet Underground. And I think that there's, I don't mean this necessarily in a bad way, because it's one of the things that makes it cool about it. There's a certain lack of cohesion, I think, on the album. Uh, I mean, just the differences from song to song are jarring, you know, in a way. In a way, it's like a microcosm of Lou's solo career, uh, just distilled into one disc. I mean, just looking at the first four songs, you've got Sunday Morning, which is just the catchiest, breeziest song. It almost sounds like sinister. It's You almost imagine he's like a knife behind his back when he's singing it or something. It's like a parody of a Harper's Bazaar track or something. You really sense his uh, his past working at, as a as a a hit cribber at, at Pigwick Records coming to the fore here. And then you've got the relentless I'm Waiting for the Man, which is, you know, punk a decade early with his street poetry that I think recounts Lou and John's journey uptown to busk and to sell drugs. 
And then you've got Nico coming in for Femme Fatale with her sort of Germanic accent and slightly flat reading of, of Lou's r- lyrics. And then, of course, you have Venus and Furs, which to me is, is when you hear Velvet Underground for the first time. I mean, you know, Venus and Furs, it might be about S&M. It could be about anything. Just it's so musically shocking that it was just never anything like it before. Yeah, I think with Venus and Furs on that first record, that is where the Velvet Underground really makes a break from rock music as it existed before that album. You know, the collision of noise and subversive lyrics, you know, that menacing feeling that you were talking about, and how it all holds together with surprising melody. I mean, that record is so noisy and, like, repulsive in a lot of ways, (laughs) but it's also very seductive. And, uh, you know, it, it... there's a magnetism to it that draws you into the murk and the dreck and the filth, even as like you feel haunted by it. You know, to me, that's just the Velvet Underground vibe in a nutshell. And then, of course, you have Heroin, which we've already talked about. I mean, that's another obvious landmark on this record. I mean, you know, much has been said about like how groundbreaking the lyrics are, but the way the music conveys what the lyrics are expressing to me is like is the true brilliance, I think, of that track. It's addiction. You can't stop. It gets going faster and faster. You can't get off this train. It's incredible. It yeah. is incredible the way he was able to convey that. Yeah, and I think, you know, you can really see, like, the way that Kale connected with Reed's words and how he was able to convey what those words were expressing musically. You know, to me, like, heroin is, like, the peak of that. And, look, so much has been said about the first Velvet Underground record, one of the greatest and most influential rock records of all time. And... It really shows the power of what Lou Reed and John Cale could do together. But unfortunately, it's also, in many ways, the beginning of the end. Because we see that their partnership is going to like pretty quickly disintegrate after that. And I think it really starts with Lou Reed's decision to fire Andy Warhol as their manager. Which, let's just take a moment to like appreciate like how ballsy <laughs> that was yeah. of Lou Reed to do that. Because Andy Warhol you know, was maybe the most famous artist in the world at that time. I mean, if not the most famous, like among the most famous, just a huge media star. And as you said before, I mean, it's unlikely that the Velvet Underground would have even like had a record deal if Andy Warhol hadn't designed their album cover and like literally put his name on the cover of the record. Like, I don't think the Velvet Underground's name is on the cover of the Banana record, but like Andy Warhol's name is, Uh, (laughs) you know, which I think tells you a lot about uh, the, you know, the level of celebrity that he had at that time. But um, I think for Lou Reed, he came to see Andy Warhol's celebrity as a liability at some point. That, like, this guy who, uh, you know, was their manager was in many ways bigger than the band that he was managing. And you really start to see Lou Reed, I think, asserting himself as, like, the sole auteur of this band. Like, he wants to be the one perceived to be in the driver's seat. And I think when that first record ultimately proved to be a commercial failure, it was probably like justification enough in his mind to like make a change in management. So they end up hiring this guy named Steve Sesnick, who is essentially like a Lou Reed loyalist. And that's certainly how John Cale sees it, because from his perspective, you know, this new manager comes in and he's really pushing Lou Reed to the forefront. And Cale is starting to feel marginalized in this band. And I think rightly... He felt like he was a co-pilot of the Velvet Underground, but because of this new manager and also Lou Reed, you know, his insecurity or his need for power, however you want to put it, 
is putting John Cale in a corner, and John Cale is not going to be comfortable in that corner for very much longer. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this sets the stage for sessions for what would become White Light, White Heat. And Lou feels liberated at this point. He's fired Warhol. He's gotten rid of Nico at this point as well. It gave him a taste of what true control felt like. And he was less and less inclined to compromise with a band. And the push and pull between him and John is, is really apparent in this album. And it's been characterized as a sonic war. You know, Kale was still this musical director, and he's adding form to Lou's improvisation. Uh, but Reed's insistence on sort of making melody more, of, you know, giving more importance to melody and, and narrative, lyrical narrative, reined back some of John's wilder experiments. And for Kale, he really saw this as, a, as an experiment in what he called anti-beauty. It was like sort of the antithesis of commercial. He would say, I wanted to fuck these songs up. And uh, Mo Tucker called it constructed lunacy, which is also really good. 
And it makes sense that this is John Cale's last album with them because Lou was trying to push things in a more commercial direction. He wanted this to be a commercial success. And, uh, and John Cale would later say, you know, the problem with the Velvets was it was always a conflict between doing revolutionary songs like Venus and Furs and pretty songs. And, you know, John obviously was on the side of what he called the revolutionary songs. And I think the best illustration of this kind of sonic war was Sister Ray, which is this 17-minute, you know, done in one take because everybody was more or less fed up with each other at this point. So I said, okay, you know, do whatever you want. We're, going, we're giving it all we got to this one take. And it's really indicative of their relationship because, I mean, it just sounds like a musical battle, like especially when John turns his organ up about 10 minutes in and starts trying to blast through Lou's guitar. I mean, it it's really, it's striking to hear. And uh, I think that, for all of the collaboration that they had on the album that worked so well, Lou would still pull these kind of sneaky power moves. Like I think he remixed the masters behind the band's back and he would later claim full ownership of all the writing and arranging, which, which obviously uh, pissed Kale off. But you know, if, if white light, white heat, like was a war between, you know, John Kale, like you said, wanting to do revolutionary songs and Lou Reed wanting to do pretty songs, then John Cale like won that album because that is yeah. a very noisy record. There are moments of beauty on it, but like it's definitely like the the chaos wins out on that record. Uh, and the Velvets wouldn't make a record remotely like that after John Cale left. I mean, if you listen to you know the self titled album and Loaded, they're much more straightforward, conventional sounding rock records. I think they're both wonderful albums, uh, loaded with just tons of great Lou Reed songs. Um, but that uh, innovative musical quality that the first two Velvet Underground records have, I mean, they're undeniably missing from the next two records. What's interesting to me is this binary that existed at this time between like Lou Reed supposedly wanting to do pretty songs and John Cale wanting to, wanting to do noisy songs. Because if you look at their subsequent like solo careers, I think John Cale made like a like many albums that are very pretty and like very kind of singer songwriter oriented. I mean, really like his most celebrated solo records like Paris 1919 or vintage violence. Uh, you know, it's like piano based songs that have great melodies and he has a really nice singing voice. I think arguably he has like a nicer singing voice than Lou Reed, even though I love Lou Reed's vocals. Meanwhile, Lou Reed made some of the most like alienating rock records of the era. I mean, starting with metal machine music, I mean, you don't get much noisier than that, even up until like the end of his career making, you know, Lulu with Metallica, you know, very noisy, alienating, you know, kind of break the mold type music. So it shows that like both guys were capable of like doing what the other guy did. I just wonder like if Lou Reed was going to contradict whatever John Cale wanted, you know, to me, he strikes me as like one of the most yeah. famous contrarians in rock music. Like if if John Cale wanted to make a pretty record, I wonder if Lou Reed would have wanted to make a noisy record. You know, I just think <laughs> that he was like ready to get John Cale out of the band. Like he wanted it to be his band. John Cale, I think, ceased being a collaborator in Lou Reed's eyes and now became a threat. So it's like I have to get rid of the threat in my band. And John took a very uh, an interesting view of all this in later years when he was talking to the band's biographer. He said, Lou and I eventually found the group too small for the both of us, so I left, which is sort of a self-serving uh, view on history because in reality, Lou fired him. Lou went to a, a Greenwich Village coffee shop with, with Sterling and Moe and basically said, look, either he goes or I go. And that really wasn't much of a choice because if your, your primary songwriter leaves the band, there's not much of a, not much of a band left to really save. 
So, uh, so the decision was made. Lou didn't even do it himself. He sent Sterling over to fire John, who uh, viewed it, you know, understandably as, as a betrayal. He characterized it as being stabbed in the back. And, you know, Velvet Underground fans would spend decades uh, parsing through all the many reasons why this might have happened and, and sort of the great music that could have been made between them in later years if they'd stuck it out together. So John Cale's out of the band as of 1968. The Velvet Underground end up making two more records with Lou Reed at the head. As I said before, there's the self-titled record from 1969, and there's Loaded from 1970. And then by 1970, Lou Reed himself has exited the band, and he starts his own solo career. And, you know, I've recently gone through, like, a heavy Lou Reed solo period phase, like, where I was listening to all of his records. Because, you know, I've always loved Lou Reed, but I was probably more of a Velvet Underground person than a Lou Reed solo artist you know, partisan, but I've really come around to his records recently. Although I think you have to decide that you love Lou Reed's solo records in order to get into them because, because he does have this pattern in his career where he makes a record that is maybe a commercial breakthrough like Transformer. And then he follows it up with like the most anti-commercial move that you can imagine, like making a record like Berlin. Like, I don't know. Like, It's two it, steps forward, one step back. With yeah. The, like, with are you a fan of Berlin, by the way? Like, I love the record Berlin. But it's probably the most depressing rock record ever made. It's too it's too much for me. I can't live in that world too long. I'm afraid I'm going to get like, it's like the nothing from the never ending story. It's just this black wave. I'm afraid I'm going to get sucked in. I mean, I appreciate it for what it is, but it's definitely not something. I, I'm more of a John Cale solo. Vintage Violence, I think, is amazing. Paris, 1919. But a lot of, of you know, the berlin era lose stuff i i can't handle too much of. if you've never heard berlin there is literally a song on that record called the kids where the backing vocals i'm gonna put the backing vocals in in, in quotes are, are just screaming children like literally screaming children and they are and they were actually screaming it was bob ezrin the producer i think it was his kids and i forget what he told them exactly like he might have said that like their mother died in a car accident or something he said something to his kids to freak them out so they would scream on this track <laughs> for this Lou Reed record because it's, it was the most depressing record of all time and we need legitimately screaming children. So Lou Reed makes Berlin in 1973 and then he follows it up with like Sally Can't Dance, which is like almost like a parody of a mainstream rock record. At least that's how I sell it to myself because it's so inane in a lot oh, of I ways. I thought it was sarcastic. Yeah, the yeah. whole thing. It's such a bizarre record. That, yeah, it's almost like he's, like, making fun of, like, mainstream rock listeners for, like, liking this kind of pap. Like, that's the vibe of Sally Can't Dance. And then, of course, he makes Metal Machine Music, which is a record that, like, no one liked at the time. I've actually kind of come around to it in later years. I think I maybe appreciated it more as, like, a like as a fuck you gesture than as music. But it's a fascinating <laughs> record. And then occasionally he would hit upon, like, a happy medium, like a record like Coney Island Baby, which to me just sounds like essentially like the non-John Cale Velvet Underground records uh, where, you know, he's writing in a melodic style with like great lyrics, not too alienating, but also like not too mainstream. It's like the Goldilocks porridge, like just right option for Lou Reed records. <laughs> his discography is like all over the place. But then you have John Cale and like, would you agree that like his discography, I think is like pretty consistent. Oh yeah. I think it's amazing. I mean, as you said earlier, like I, I really think it was their solo careers have so much of an element of trying to prove that they could do what the other person really wanted to do. And I think with John Cale, I mean, Vintage Violence to me sounds almost more like a band record, like, like the band, not 
but in Velvet Underground than like anything by Lamont Young or John Cage or anything. I mean, for all of the talk of John's way out ideas, then that was why he got dismissed from the Velvet Underground. You know, it's really accessible and ornate. I mean, tracks like Gideon's Bible, it's like a, a later a Beach Boys song or something. And uh, he would later say that he approached the album as kind of an exercise to see if he could write, you know, accessible, catchy tunes. Uh, and the results are really stunning. I mean, and he revisits his, his sort of more avant-garde roots with uh, the mostly instrumental Church of Anthrax and Academy in Peril. But then you've got Paris 1919, which is even more poppy and delicate. It's almost like, like a Van Dyke Parks record or something. And, you know... I wonder if he's not, he's trying to beat Lou at his own game. He's, he's crafting these incredibly catchy songs, but he's giving them these elaborate Baroque orchestrations that Lou doesn't have the ability or the patience to do. And then the lyrics, too, are almost like short stories. I mean, you've got, you know, Child's Christmas in Wales and Macbeth and Graham Greene and, and the title track. It's almost like he seized on Lou's ambition of being like the Raymond Chandler of rock. And then he put his own spin on it by reflecting his own European heritage and doing it in a way that that Lou couldn't touch. And so, yeah, I I love John's stuff. The album Fear is also incredible. I think that he definitely has the more consistent solo career, at least in the 70s. I also want to shout out John Cale's career as a producer because his contributions in that regard during this period are maybe even more important than like his own albums. I mean, he he worked with Nico on the Marble Index, which is a mind-blowing record way ahead of its time. Lou Reed himself talked about how he thought that was like one of the best records he'd ever heard. He also ended up producing the first Stooges record. He produced the first Modern Lovers record. He produced the first uh, Patti Smith record. You know, again, like he is at the forefront of like bands that defined what punk music was going to be, you know, for the next several decades. You know, John Cale is there in the background. And I can't help but contrast it with like Lou Reed, him trying to be a producer. There's this great story in Chris Francis' book, Remain in Love, where he talks about how Lou Reed almost became a producer for the Talking Heads early on in their career. Apparently, Lou Reed saw them, I think it was at CBGB's, and invited the Talking Heads back to his apartment. And they were hanging out. It was like maybe three or four in the morning. And at one point, Lou Reed takes a quart of Haagen-Dazs ice cream out of the freezer, (laughs) gets a spoon, and sits on the floor of his apartment and proceeds to eat an entire quart of ice cream while also talking to the talking heads about like different uppers and downers that he likes. Like apparently he has like a textbook in his apartment. It's like one of the only things in his apartment that is like a medical textbook of just pills. And France says that like Lou Reed was going through it. Like it was an LL bean catalog. <laughs> I'm just talking about different pills. Uh, and ultimately talking heads decided not to work with Lou Reed because Lou Reed offered them like a really bad deal. Basically like, a classic record company type ripoff type situation. So along with being, you know, kind of out of it, he was trying to rip off this band from New York in a way that you wouldn't expect an artist to do to another artist. But Chris Francis was like, yeah, "Yeah, up and coming artist. Yeah. We can't really work with this guy. So yeah, a pretty obvious contrast there between John Cale and Lou Reed in terms of the production work that they've done or didn't do. Yeah. You know, if you were going to ask me what I thought, what some items that would be in Lou Reed's apartment, I would probably say, a quart of Hagen Dazs, a burned spoon, and a physician's desk reference as being like the three solitary items in his uh, in his apartment. <laughs> yeah, it's a safe bet. Right. Yeah, Lou, for all of his you know being Lou, uh, he was always very complimentary about John Cale's solo work. And years later, he would say of John, "Music runs out of him like water down a mountain." 
which I always thought was a, a beautiful thing to say about him. And contrary to popular belief, Lou and John actually did share the stage a few times in the 70s prior to their late 80s reconciliation. They played with Nico most famously at a really uh, oft-bootlegged, now commercially available 1972 show in Paris. And Nico, John, and Lou, they performed really mellow, sort of acoustic versions of some uh, Velvet Underground songs. And it was Lou's last performance with, with Nico before her death in the 80s. And uh, yeah, he and John got together sort of at, like intermittently at little clubs in New York. And uh, I think they spent like a Christmas together once in the late 70s. But uh, they really didn't get back together until the late 80s. Yeah, the album Songs for Drella, which is a beautiful record, a duo record where Lou is playing guitar, essentially, and John Cale is playing keyboards, and there's no other instrumentation on it. One of the best records, I think, that either one of those guys has ever made. But leading up to that, it's interesting to contrast like where they were at in their careers, because you know Lou and John both were dealing with substance abuse problems that they were trying to get over. I think Lou's problems are much better documented, just because he's more famous than John Cale. But Cale himself was addicted to heroin, then he got into cocaine, and then booze. You know, a a fairly, I think, common arc for a lot of rock stars at that time. And he really seemed to be slipping into obscurity at this time. I mean, Lou Reed, again, he had his ups and downs throughout the 70s and 80s, but there was a period in the 80s where he was putting out, I think, pretty great records that were critically acclaimed and that were doing like fairly well commercially. I mentioned The Blue Mask earlier from 1982. I think most Lou Reed fans consider that to be among his very best records. And then after that, he put out the album New Sensations, which had uh, the song uh, I Love You, Suzanne, which was actually kind of like a medium-sized MTV hit in the mid-'80s, which is like incredible that Lou Reed would have had something like that at that time. And then meanwhile, you have have John Cale, who started doing this thing like where he would perform on stage with like a hockey mask on. And... (laughs) Like total Jason Voorhees style, like yeah, just crazy. And there was that story where he was doing his cover of the Elvis Presley song "Heartbreak Hotel," and like, didn't he cut like a like the head off a chicken on stage? Like literally, like actually did that. Yeah, and then he threw it into the audience just because. <laughs> and I, I mean, he would tell the story of like his bandmates were like almost throwing up on stage. Nobody knew he was going to do it, and they were absolutely horrified and they all stormed off the stage in disgust and i guess he wrote a song called chicken shit in retaliation just at his bandmates for for storming off in the middle of him decapitating a chicken on the stage yeah he would call it his his most effective showstopper ever which is one way of putting it so it's weird to think of john cale in the same context as like ozzy osbourne but like i think cocaine will do that to you like <laughs> there was something about cocaine in the 80s that if you were doing a lot of blow don't let any don't bring birds, an animal on stage, especially birds. Don't bring any birds right? on stage because they will lose their head. They're going to get chopped off or bitten off. So John Cale, you know, he's struggling to get over his demons. Lou Reed is having an up and down career. And then their paths end up intersecting over a tragedy, essentially. Andy Warhol passes away in uh, 1987. And that ends up being an impetus for these two guys to work together again. And it was 20 years after Lou fired him, and his death was really unexpected. He went in for gallbladder surgery, and he was only 58. So it was not something anyone was expecting. And Lou and Andy's relationship had been really weird. It had been 20 years, as I said, after he he was fired. And there was a lot of resentment on Andy's part. I guess he was really angry at Lou for not visiting him when he got shot in 1968 by Valerie Solanas. And it got really petty. I mean, Lou and Andy would be sitting in the same row at the MTV Awards in 1984, which is 
amazing on its own. And Lou wouldn't speak to him. Just things like that. And didn't invite Andy to his wedding because he thought Andy would bring too many people. Just a lot of like little things. And so Andy was very hurt by that. So when he died, I think Lou felt a tremendous wave of remorse for the way that he treated him all these years. And he goes to his memorial service at a, a church in New York, and he runs into to John Cale. And they're, they're sort of, you know, mutual friends are there, and they, they lead him to each other. And there's a bit of, I think what John would say was sort of eggshell walking for a little bit of time. But they let their guard down, and they started to discuss the notion of recording a, a musical tribute, something for Andy, just in recognition of his tremendous role in, in, in their career. Uh, and it was mostly Kale's uh, idea. He was sort of the primary motivator, and he was the one who who kind of embraced the thaw in their relationship and made the calls. And this became Songs for Drella. And Drella was a, a nickname for Andy. It was a, a portmanteau of uh, Dracula and Cinderella, which was a name that Andy didn't like very much. So I always thought that was very a very interesting choice to have that as the title for the tribute record. Yeah, I think it suits the record in a lot of ways because it's an album that has a lot of affection for Andy Warhol, but it's not a sentimental tribute. It is really a warts and all depiction of how Lou and I'm sure John felt about Andy Warhol and also how Andy Warhol felt about Lou Reed. And to me, it really you know exemplifies, I think, the greatness of Lou Reed's writing, that he's a songwriter that never just had like a simplistic type approach to his lyrics. So they were never just about one thing. He could express multiple emotions, like complicated feelings all at the same time. And I think it really suited this record really well because it does feel like two people grieving someone that they looked up to. But again, it also has the feel of like, we're not going to sugarcoat how awful this guy could be at the same time. <laughs> the song that always stands out to me that I think is a great collaboration between Lou and John is that song, A Dream. Like, that's the song that that jumps out to me. Like, you know that song, right? Oh, yeah. It, it, incredible song. It takes passages from Andy's diary, which had recently been published, and it's all Andy in his diary uh, shit-talking Lou Reed, basically. And John gets to read those passages to Lou. I mean, it's, it's an incredible artistic choice because I, I can't really think of anybody in an artistic sense who's been hurt as much, uh, you know, equally as Andy, as John Cale. So, I mean, he really gives, I don't want to say a venom, but he gives an emotional authenticity to these words that no one else could bring. I mean, it, it's an incredible moment on the record. I mean, the lyrics are, I saw Lou, I'm so mad at him. Lou Reed got married and didn't invite me. I mean, it's because he thought I'd bring too many people. I don't get it. Could have at least called. And just things like that. You know, I hate Lou. I really do. He won't even hire us for his videos. And I was proud of him. It's yeah. heartbreaking stuff. It's so heavy. And there is that subtext to it where, uh, you know, Lou Reed and John Cale are also reconciling. You know, it's like too late for Lou Reed to, you know, reconcile with Andy Warhol in this life. But he is able to reconnect with, with John Cale. And I'm sure, you know, some of the things that, Andy Warhol felt about Lou Reed. I'm sure John Cale felt the same way, you know, because he was also fired uh, and kicked out of the Velvet Underground Circle, you know, many years earlier. I love the performance, too, that they filmed for uh, that album. Uh, I think it was at uh, St. Anne's Church in Brooklyn. And again, it's just those two guys on stage, Lou Reed playing guitar, John Cale playing piano, no other musicians. It's a very intimate performance. And it does feel like two friends that 
have been estranged for a long time, reconnecting musically and communicating through these songs that are wonderful. But again, there's always that underlying subtext of the relationship between these two guys, how they're working through it. And it's just riveting because, again, it's, I think there's a lot of warmth and affection there, but it's non-sentimental. It's very honest. And all of the resentment and anger and frustration that was also inherent in these relationships, that comes to the fore, too, along with all of the, I think, genuine love and camaraderie that existed. Yeah, and this sort of sets the stage for the reunion that they have a few years later in 1992. Uh, Songs for Jello comes out in 1990. It takes a few years for th- for the fall to really set in. It's funny, they've been offered so much money for tours over the years and they actually finally have their reunion it was an impromptu moment at a uh, at an andy warhol exhibit in france lou and john are performing songs from songs for drella and sterling and mo are in the audience and then they welcome them on stage and they play a couple songs together and they end up having a full-scale reunion a few years after this uh they tour europe it was going to be basically a dry run for a bigger american tour And it was great. It was the first time the band had ever played Europe. It was really the first time that most people had ever seen the band perform. And it was seen as almost like a huge risk because the band were were this mythic, you know, untouchables, almost like if the Beatles had reunited or something. There was fear that it was better in people's imaginations than to see them in the early 90s, you know, on stage. But it was uh, the the tour uh, from a musical standpoint uh, was, was fairly successful, but the same old resentments came back mostly with Lou, who wanted to basically control as many elements as he could. There was a live album that was put together that he demanded the right to produce, and they wouldn't let him do it. So he brought his right-hand man, Mike Rathke, to do the job. And uh, and John Cale would always complain about the album's mix. He said that the bootlegs sounded better than the results. And the back cover of the live album has all songs written by Lou Reed in text that's bigger than the song titles themselves. Yeah, and there was also that thing like where they were going to play on MTV Unplugged, and that had to get scuttled because Lou Reed insisted on producing those recordings as well. I think that there was also talk of doing an American tour at some point, and that ended up getting canceled because... You know, the old thing that existed in the 60s, it reared its head again. Whether you want to call it Lou Reed, you know, being a megalomaniac or him being insecure, he had to be in control of the Velvet Underground. And it is, I think, especially weird or funny or ironic, however you want to put it, that like, you know, John Cale, again, he has this great reputation for being a producer, you know, a much better track record than Lou Reed does. And yet, you know, Lou Reed had no interest in letting John Cale sort of helping to guide these recordings. So, you know, John Cale could see the writing on the wall and he was like, look, I, I, I can't be in this situation again. I, I have my own career. I don't have to put up with Lou Reed anymore. He said at one point, you know, it was the end of a very fruitful relationship, a poison one, but it has been fruitful. So, and really they only performed together one more time when the Velvet Underground was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, they performed a song called Last Night I Said Goodbye to My Friend, which was dedicated to Sterling Morrison who passed away in 1995. And uh, they played that song as a trio, Reed, Kale, and Mo Tucker. And that was it. No more Velvet Underground after that. Now, when Lou Reed died in uh, October 2013, John put out a tribute on Facebook, which I'll probably have a hard time reading out loud because I find it so sweet. The world has lost a fine songwriter and poet. I've lost my schoolyard buddy. And he yeah. elaborated in a further statement. The news I feared the most pales in comparison to the lump in my throat and the hollow in my stomach. Two kids have a chance meeting, and 47 years later, we fight and love the same way. 
Losing, e losing either one is incomprehensible. No replacement value, no digital or virtual fill. Broken now for all time. Oh. Yeah, you know, Lou once said that, you know, someone asked him if, uh, you know, how he felt about John Cale and, and, and Mo Tucker. And he said, yeah, we fight like all the time, but like I'm the only one who's allowed to say anything bad about them. If anyone else says anything <laughs> bad about them, I'll defend them to the death. You know, which to me really speaks to how they, I think, looked at each other as family. You know, like Lou Reed and John Cale, they were like brothers who fought all the time, but they were always going to have each other's back when the chips were down. And, uh, you know, when Lou Reed died, I think John Kill recognized that, like, I'm connected to this guy. You know, as much as he might drive me mad sometimes, we're always going to be together. And, you know, we've done so many great things. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
All right, we've now reached the part of the episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Uh, let's do Lou Reed first. I mean, look, to me, he is one of the greatest songwriters in rock history. Um, and especially as a lyricist, he's on a very short list for me with Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, and Bruce Springsteen. He's one of the few lyricists, I think, where you can read the words on a page and it works almost as well as it does in a song. Like, it really does read like literature. There's also the fact, and again, this has been remarked by many people, but I, I think it bears repeating, that Lou Reed really did expand the subject matter of what rock songs could be, I think, as much as Bob Dylan did. He brought, I think, a literary quality to rock music that a lot of people, I think, have tried to live up to, but I don't think they've quite matched what Lou Reed was able to do in his best songs. And Lou Reed, too, you know, he's one of the great characters in rock history. You know, he's an eccentric, he's a crank, but he's always riveting. And, you know, as much as I would be afraid to interview Lou Reed, you know, as a rock <laughs> critic and journalist, I'm sure he would have hated my guts. It's like I still, I think, would have relished the opportunity to be insulted by Lou Reed. I mean, to me, there's no greater honor in rock oh, journalism wouldn't? than that. I mean, of course, he, he had the voice, he had the attitude, he had the swagger. And in Velvet Underground, he had the melodies. And I think John Cale would have been completely content to be the next Stockhausen or John Cage. And I think that Lou Reed is the one who actually had the ambition to reach sort of mainstream or at least semi-mainstream listeners. And his ambition to write adult rock and roll, you know, may sound kind of bloated, but it, it was sincere. And I think his efforts really did push the genre forward. And not to be too reductive, but I think that his songs, especially on the first album, uh, gave Kale a product to edit or, you know, in his words, fuck up. Like, I don't think anything would have happened in those first uh, Velvet Underground sessions if Kale had been the one in the leadership position. I think that Reed was the engine of the band and Kale responded to what he was given. And I think he was given great stuff because he's freaking Lou Reed and he's one of the most compelling artists of all time. Now, moving over to the pro-John Kale side, you know, while I think you can obviously make a case for Lou Reed pushing rock music forward as a lyricist, I think in a lot of ways John Cale did the same thing musically by bringing in these avant-garde and classical music references, the, the drone, the noise, you know, the fucking up of like beautiful pop <laughs> songs and taking them to a much different and experimental place. You know, I happen to love the Velvet Underground records that uh, came out after John Cale left the band. But there's no question that they became a more normal rock band in his absence. Even with like Lou Reed's great songs and his great lyrics, I'm not sure that they would be regarded as revolutionary as they uh, are now if John Cale hadn't have been in the band. You know, I think that they would have been looked at as a really great 60s rock band with amazing lyrics, but, you know, musically kind of doing what a lot of other bands were doing. But the things that John Cale brought in, it just took those songs to a different place. And I think even now, those records stand out as being really innovative and cutting edge and fresh and energetic. And I think it's always going to be that way as long as people care about rock music. Yeah, I think John Cale's drone tone was really his gift to the band as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you hear that in many of Velvet Underground's best tunes. I mean, Heroin, Venus and Furs, Hey Mr. Rain, the bass on White Light, White Heat. He showed you the power and versatility of a single note. And his talents as a producer later in his career showcase, I think, what he brought to the Velvets. He has this gift for arranging and orchestrating and sort of overseeing the construction of sound. And I think he's just this incredible interpreter at helping other artists find their voice. I mean, he did that with Iggy Pop. He did that with Nico. He did that with Patti Smith. He did that with Modern Lovers. But he did it first with Lou Reed. I think that John helped Lou find his style and move away from the sort of more folky approach 
to this edgier, more abrasive sound that became, you know, the Velvet's uh, trademark sound. And, uh, you know, in later years, John proved to be a really incredible singer in his own right. But I think his genius is really in arranging. I mean, that's why when we think of the song Hallelujah, we don't think of the Leonard Cohen one. We think of John Cale's. And uh, just as an aside, too, I just I really appreciate John Cale's authenticity. You know, so much of what Lou seemed to do seemed to center around poses to me, at least. And I, I feel that, that Cale really poured his heart and feelings into to his songs in, in, in the 70s period, at least and imbuing them with this intensity and emotional charge that I think is, you know, really rare in contemporary pop music. So when we look at these two guys together, I mean, look, just listen to the first two Velvet Underground records and listen to songs for Drella. You know, like those three albums, I think, are all masterpieces. And it really shows that for as much tension, you know, existed between these two guys, they really were soulmates personally and professionally, you know, that... They could see in each other like what made them great and how they could take what the other guy did and create something that was, I think, ultimately greater than the sum of its parts, even though both parts are worth a whole hell of a lot. It really is, like I think, one of the great collaborations in rock history. And while it's sad that they didn't do more together, I feel like maybe we should just be grateful that they were able to make records together at all. You know, like the records yeah. that they made are all really amazing and always worth revisiting. Lou's lyrical skills and his gift for melody and John's sort of European orchestral sensibilities and daring avant-garde arrangements, I think that's what elevated them from being a a highly literate garage band, like sort of a nihilist fugs or something, to to something greater. Something, as I said earlier, that really pushed the genre forward and still still sounds fresh today. So, Jordan, on this show, I like to think of us as Lou Reed and John Cale-type collaborators. And I just want you to know that I will always be your mirror. (laughs) <laughs> I thought I was Nico, but I'll, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, this is a tough one for puns, I got to say. The best I had was there he goes again, but that's, that's good. Well, I've been waiting for my man to come up with a good pun. <laughs> and I'll keep on waiting, I guess, until our next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rivals. We'll be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtalk. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good the host of the podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.